Welcome to the Bridge Church Podcast. Our purpose statement at Bridge Church is to reach people where they are and help them grow. We hope today's message inspires you towards growth, and we pray it's life-changing, and we hope to see you soon. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the opportunity to come to you and to learn about you and to grow in you. We pray, Heavenly Father, over this time that you would speak to your people and that we would come to know you more. Lord, we pray for a fresh touch for the brokenhearted tonight. We pray for encouragement for the lowly. We pray, God, for the one that has been wandering, that they would find their way back to you again. We pray, Lord, for the one who the pandemic has left them with nothing. And yet today they're reminded that they still have you. God, we honor you. We love you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen? Amen. Amen. Honored to have you here tonight. Uh, And for those of you online, we're honored to have you as well. Franny Crosby, she was a hymnist, meaning she wrote a lot of hymns. Franny Crosby would write 9,000 hymns. Franny Crosby not only was a hymn writer, but she was a missionary. She actually helped, uh, right here in Manhattan, uh, the poor, the unemployed. She helped out with a school for the blind. She was actually anti-racist. She fought against slavery of her time. She was around in the 1800s. And she was a mighty woman, writing, singing, and an activist. What people don't know about Franny Crosby is that when she was six weeks old, a doctor applied a medicine to her eyes that did not work. And at six weeks old, she would lose her sight and be blind the rest of her life. At six months old, her father would get into an accident and die. Then years later, Franny Crosby would get married, and then her first child, her daughter, her only child, would die in her sleep. Franny Crosby was a woman who, at just a young age, lost her sight, at a young age, lost her father, and then at the right age, when things were supposed to be working, lost her daughter in her sleep. You would think a woman like that would be thinking about her loss all the time. You'd think a woman like that, part of her story would be loss. But one day she wrote a song in 1873. It went like this. Have you ever heard it before? Blessed assurance, Jesus is mine. And what she was essentially saying is loss is not my story. It is certainly a chapter, and there are parts of my story that indicate loss. But she says, Jesus is mine. I wonder if you'd say that tonight. Jesus is mine. There's something personal about that. And then she goes on to say, this is my story. This is my song. So powerful was Jesus in her life that she believed that her entire story had changed. What she is saying 
is that Jesus is so great a possession that the minute Jesus comes into your life, he interrupts every other program that you have. Her greatest possession. You know, Forbes has never called me to be on their thousand air list, amen? I mean, I would make a good candidate for, for, you know, I pay rent every month. You know what I'm saying? But unfortunately, Forbes doesn't have a thousandaire list. They only have millionaire and billionaires list because even Forbes understands that there's a degree to the amount of possession you have that changes your identity. Once you have something so great, we can't see you the same. You know, I saw a person the other day in one of those Honda Fits. You know those cars that you know are great for you know I guess parallel parking and I would never get a I need like a Honda Fit double X triple XL double wide extra deluxe amen so I would never get a Honda Fit but I saw I was like oh that's cute you know that's what you say when you see a Honda Fit it's like oh that's cute oh you know you see it it's like but no one goes around being called a Honda Fit owner but if you had a Lamborghini amen hallelujah. If you had a Lamborghini with those doors that open up like the Karate Kid, like wow, like that, then people would go, you're a Lamborghini owner. The reality is, is that when you have a great possession, people see you differently. Your identity changes. What she is saying is Jesus came into my life and now my story is changed. I was wearing a, a shirt the other day and I was going to preach and I realized as I went to preach I wasn't sure if this person knew Jesus. It was a great shirt, but it, was, it had a person on there. So I, I Googled them and Googled them and Googled them and Googled them. Finally, I got to page six and it said something about them going to church. And I said, Lord, if somebody, if I were to die and they were to Google me, I hope they don't find Jesus on page six. I hope they can find you on the first page. I want Jesus to be so ingrained into my story that you could not see me without seeing Jesus. That's how great a possession he is. He redefines every other program. He does everything different. He rearranges everything different in your life. He is your greatest possession. Tonight, what I'm asking you is, Jesus, your story. Oh, I'm sorry. I'm not asking you, do you go to church? I'm not asking you, do you read the Bible? I'm not asking you, have you even had religious affections? Meaning, has there been a moment when you felt good about Jesus? I'm asking, has your story radically changed the minute that Jesus stepped in? Tonight, we're going to look at a woman, Mary Magdalene. Mary Magdalene was a woman who met Jesus and everything changed. Mary Magdalene, we read in Luke chapter 8, verse 2. Luke chapter 8, verse 2. It says, And also some women who had been healed of evil spirits and infirmities, Mary called Magdalene, from whom seven demons had gone out. So the one thing you can't do is get beyond Mary Magdalene. She's in all four Gospels. So she's incredibly important to the story of Jesus. Mary Magdalene is not given a lot of Bible time, though. She doesn't have a story that you read about a lot. But I want you to slow down and read what it says about her here. It says that she had been healed of seven demons. Now, understand what the writer of Luke chapter 8 says. He says that, here's Jesus, there's some women who'd been healed of evil spirits. So what I want you to note is that the writer Luke 
makes a category for a whole group of people that were healed of evil spirits. He doesn't tell us how many of them were. He doesn't tell us about the spirits. Then he says there's a whole group of people that have been healed of infirmities. Then he creates a whole nother category for Mary because Mary Magdalene's issues were far different and far greater. It said she had seven demons. In the Bible, the way that the word seven works is different than the way that you and I say the word seven. Seven for us is the literal number. But in Semitic times, they would not have used the word seven in the same way. In fact, what they would have done is they would have used the word seven to mean a whole lot. What they were saying about this woman who was demonically possessed was that she was different than the other people who had evil spirits. Mary Magdalene had a whole lot of issues. Mary Magdalene most likely was so possessed that she no longer lived with her family. Being a single woman, she was probably subject to destitute poverty. She was probably on corners. We learn a similar idea of the man who, was a, who had a demon in Mark chapter five. They said this man had thousands of demons, again, used of the language of the time to mean many, tons of demonic uh, forces working inside of him. Well, this was the same with Mary. And what we learn about this man in Mark chapter five is, it says night and day among the tombs and on the mountains, he was always crying out, cutting himself with stones. Let me help you understand here. This demon-possessed man was constantly committing self-harm. He placed himself among tombs. He most likely went to the mountains to throw himself off. He heard dark voices, multiple voices, always telling him, end his life. Understand that the darkness and destructive forces working inside of him and working inside of Mary Magdalene would have never walked up to Jesus. Remember, this man was amongst the tombs. Mary most likely was always on the street. Jesus would have had to walk up to her. Now, I want you to understand, some of you are, some of you, when I say demon-possessed, you, you get a little nervous. But let me help you understand. These are the kind of people we would call mental patients. The kind of person that is not able to get it together. The kind of person you may see on the train talking to themselves. The kind of person that may want to hurt themselves. The person that just cannot get their mind right and they have evident issues. Let me say this. This has been a tough pandemic. I'm so excited to see people. But this has been hard for some of you. Some of you have heard dark voices. Some of you have had suicidal ideations. And I don't want you to just think that medicine is the only answer. There is a spiritual dynamic to all of that which occupies our internal world. And at that time, they didn't have psychiatrists. They only had healing, healing in the spiritual realm. 
And so it is with this that we understand that Mary Magdalene most likely had dirty, disheveled hair. Mary Magdalene was most likely homeless. Mary Magdalene was most likely seen. In other words, uh, Magdala is the place she's from. That's why she has the name Magdalene, but she most likely had a reputation. That's why we call her Mary Magdalene. She was the last person you would ever think would be next to Jesus. But here's what blows my mind about Mary Magdalene. We're going to learn this in the story. Mary Magdalene is the first person to see Jesus raised from the dead. Mary Magdalene is the first person to walk away and say, he has risen. So this is what we learn about Jesus. Jesus actually chose a woman, and in a patriarchal society, a woman would have been second-class citizen. But even worse, a single woman, meaning you don't even have a husband. That means you would have been a third-class citizen. But even worse, she's a mental patient. That means you would have been the bottom of the barrel. But Jesus walked up to a mental patient and turned them into a missionary. Jesus radically changes her story. So now she's devoted because she remembers the dark voices. She remembers being on the street. She remembers the disheveled hair. She remembers all those things. And I want to just interrupt this story to say, whatever you've heard, the dark voices inside of you, I cannot speak for everything you've heard, but I know there's a voice that cuts through all the voices. The name of Jesus has a voice more powerful than the dark forces inside of you. Jesus picks, chooses a woman with issues. He picks a woman with a reputation. My Jesus likes to get the unwanted and turn them into his voice in the world because you can only say, oh, it was Jesus. He tends to choose the weak things of the world to shame the strong. And so I want you to know tonight, if you've been watching during the pandemic or if you've been out of church or if you feel like you have a lot of issues, I want you to know tonight you're not disqualified. Do you have issues? That means you're qualified. You got a lot of issues? Oh, you qualify even more. People know about your issues? You a missionary. You might as well sign up. Oh, Mary. Mary's hurting now, though, because we don't much know much about her story, but Mary, we, the next time we see her, she's at the cross. Her Savior is being crucified. The Bible tells us that in John 20 and 23, I'm sorry, John 19 and 23, when the soldiers had crucified Jesus, they took his garments and divided them into four parts. One part for each soldier, also his tunic, but the tunic was seamless, woven in one piece from top to bottom. And then it goes on to say in John 19, 24 and 25, so the soldiers did these things, but standing by the cross of Jesus were his mother and his mother's sister, Mary, the wife of Clopas, and Mary Magdalene. We see Mary again. Understand that 
the crucifixion of Jesus and crucifixions in general were in no way about death. If you want to kill somebody, you can do it quickly. You can chop their head off. You can stab them in their vital organs. No, crucifixion was about torture. Crucifixion's number one role was to have a psychological effect on the crowd. You see, crucifixion was really an indication. You ever heard someone say, we're going to make an example out of you? We're going to do you so bad that no one else would even consider doing what you did. That's what crucifixion was. Crucifixion was meant to be such a humiliating practice that no one else would come against the state. Think of the helplessness that the disciples are standing there with the same one that did all these miracles, the same one that walked on water, the same one that was making water into wine and healing people of infirmities. The same one, but now this Jesus is on the cross being tortured, being crucified. Yes, the crowd has the disciples, but not only are the disciples there, but the Romans are there and the Jews are there and they're cheering on the crucifixion. Imagine being tortured publicly, but not only that, having a crowd celebrate your death while you're dying. Recently, we've learned more about the George Floyd case that created movements last year. Now, they're saying it wasn't eight minutes a knee was on his neck, but it's actually nine minutes and 29 seconds. Nine minutes and 29 seconds. Nine minutes and 29 seconds that he sat there and he was saying he couldn't breathe. Think of if you were able to, to, to stand watching the video. Think of the effect those minutes had of you. You probably didn't watch nine minutes. You probably just watched a minute or two and you were struck and enraged. You were horrified. Nine minutes and 29 seconds. Jesus was on the cross for six hours. And the disciples are there six hours watching their Savior be tortured. And what do you do? Church, this is state-sanctioned violence. This is state-sanctioned brutality. This is state-sanctioned torture. What you have to understand is who do you turn to when the authorities are the threat? The helplessness that you feel when the authorities, the ones that I would call to rescue me, are the ones hurting the one I love. Donald Williams, who was a bystander as George Floyd was being murdered, called 911. The 911 operator is saying, why are you calling if police are on the scene? He said, I'm calling the cops on the cops. What he's trying to say is, I'm calling the authorities on the authorities. Now understand the helplessness of Mary Magdalene. Jesus, I thought you were the authorities. Aren't you the authority? Aren't you one who taught with authority? Weren't you able to make creation move the way you wanted to move? I heard you walked on water. 
I heard you could call down angels. I heard so much of what you did, and I know what you did for me. Why aren't you doing it right now? Her grief of seeing torture is multiplied by not seeing her Savior come through like she knows he can. If I could say to you tonight, some of you have been walking with God and through this pandemic you've continued to walk with him, but some of you have been distracted by your grief. Some of you in your story you trusted Jesus, but then there was a moment, an opportunity that you believed God was going to move, and he didn't move. He showed up sometimes, but not in the big moment. And you're wondering, how did that happen? You've been asking God for one thing, and he won't come through. Your grief is multiplied because the one you trust isn't moving. How much more from Mary Magdalene? You radically changed my life, and now you stand there being tortured. What's interesting for Mary Magdalene is that she can't see the plan, amen? We sit here with hindsight, because we know the plan. But how many of you know that when you're in the middle of the plane, you can't, middle of the pain, you can't see the plan? It's hard to see what God is doing when you're in pain. It's hard, you know, there's people who come up to you, God's got a plan, you're like, not right now, okay, thank you. Thanks, appreciate that, I knew that. I read the Bible once, thanks, right? It's hard to see the plan. And it's hard to see the plan in the moment of your deepest pain. Mary can't see the plan because she's in the middle of her pain. One thing that probably shocked Mary to no end was, as I mentioned before to you, we moved past this so quickly in the text. It says they removed his tunic. Y'all, that's his undergarment. You would think in such a sexualized society, we'd be okay with even painting religious figures naked. But it would be shocking if there was somebody who had naked Jesus on a cross. The church would be the first people bugging out. And yet it would be the most accurate depiction of what happened. You see, you know why we wouldn't want it? Because we would be too ashamed. Wow. I, can't, I can't see. No, Jesus, Jesus, cut. Will somebody cover Jesus up? That's Every time you see Jesus with clothes on, it's someone saying, oh, Jesus, don't be naked. That's too, that's, too, that's, too, that's too much shame. And so in order to ease our conscience, we don't have historically accurate depictions. But imagine Mary sitting there, the man I love, the man who cared for me, naked on a cross, tortured for six hours. What are you doing? Call down some angels. Oh, but I'm so glad Jesus was naked. I'm so glad Jesus was naked because naked Jesus had nakedness with a purpose. Do you, if those of you that know the story in Genesis of Adam and Eve know that there's this moment where they hide 
And in Genesis chapter 3, verse 6 and 7, it says, after they ate of the tree, it says they both were, eyes were opened and they knew that they were naked and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. And essentially what that is saying is, the minute sin entered the world, we went from God consciousness to self-consciousness. We went from thinking about how do I look how will I come across? What will they think of me? Oh, will they like me? Oh, they're going to judge me. Oh, how, oh, what was that person really thinking? In essence, what we are weighing every day is the shame of our performance or lack thereof. And when Jesus dies on the cross, he doesn't only take away our sin, he takes away our shame. And he dies naked, naked, the, the worst form of punishment, naked, but naked so that I could be vulnerable. You understand, there, there was naked Jesus so there could be vulnerable Mary, so that she doesn't have to perform for anyone. And this is the beauty of what we live in now. The culture gets the idea that we shouldn't try to always frantically strive for perfection. The culture gets the idea that our worthiness shouldn't come from performance. But in order to match this idea, what the culture does is it combats it with self-worth. So it always tells you how great of a person you are. And, and, and secular psychologists would constantly say, no, you're not just, you're not your job, you're more than that. And that is true. That's true. But the truth is, we don't just need self-worth, amen? I'm not, I'm not knocking self-worth. You need grace. <laughs> because it doesn't matter how much you pump yourself up to tell you how valuable you are, you still know you're guilty. You still know how inconsistent you are. And you need to do something with that. David, when he confessed his sin, he said, wash me, clean me. I need someone outside of me to deal with me. And so the concept within our culture is, let's just kind of put it away and move on. Anybody ever tell you that? Just move on. My wife and I were watching a show the other night. And the husband had done something wrong to the, against the wife, but the wife didn't know about it. And so what they did was the wife said, come on in. And he's coming in there. He's crying. He's like, oh, honey, I'm so sorry. I'm so sorry. And she's like, what's wrong? So I'm so, so, so sorry. I got to tell you something. And she goes, no. The box. And he goes, really? She goes, the box. So they pull out this box and they open it up and he writes in there what he did and she closes the box and just gives him a hug. And this is the way they've learned to move on. <laughs> and 
And without words, my wife, I looked at my wife, look, my wife is like this. You know that look? Just... I'm like, yo, we ain't getting no box. Yo, yo, yo. You know, I wish you would put it in a box. I'm opening up that box tonight. Jesus died so that we don't have to cover our shame in a box, so that we have to put it away and pretend it's not there. How about this? In Jesus, we get grace and acceptance. He, he says, you're guilty and I love you. <laughs> you're messed up. Come on in. You, you see, we're not used to that. So we don't think, we, so listen, we hide because we want to be accepted. And in Christ, you have the grace of God that says, yes, you did it, and I still love you. Mary doesn't know that. Mary doesn't know that's what's going on. But that's what's happened for you tonight. If you're carrying shame, he was naked. Don't let contemporary culture diminish the ugliness of the cross. The nakedness is to remind you, oh, every time you look at it, oh, oh, that was for me. Mary doesn't know this. Mary's not aware of what God is doing. And right now, there's things God's doing that you can't even imagine. Ten years from now, you'll see the whole story and you'll be so excited. Well, Mary, we catch up to her in the next chapter and a couple things happen. One, she goes to the tomb and she goes to the tomb literally in order to clean the body. She doesn't think Jesus is going to rise from the dead. No one thinks Jesus is going to rise from the dead. Peter and John, they're not there. None of the disciples are there. The only person that's there is Mary, and Mary is there to clean the body. Other, other gospels will have other women there, but, but the disciples are not. And so she goes into the tomb and sees that, or she sees that the tomb is empty. And so she goes and she tells the disciples, hey, Jesus is not there, and so she thinks the Romans have taken the body. Well, Peter and John end up looking in the tomb. And in looking in the tomb, they see his clothes there, folded. And then, in John 20, 12 and 13, Mary, after the disciples leave, and you can only assume the disciples told her hey, Jesus is rose again from the dead. His clothes are in there and they're folded. But it says that somehow she didn't hear that. And so it says in 12 and 13, and he saw, she saw two angels in white sitting where the body of Jesus had lain, one at the head and one at the feet. They said to her, woman, why are you weeping? I just want you to see the scene. I don't know where you're at with Jesus today, but this is, this is at least what the story's saying. The story is saying there are folded clothes where Jesus was and two angels, and the text goes as far to point out in white, not in white clothes, amen, in white. That mostly means that they're probably having the Shekinah glory of God emanating off of them, okay? 
two angels in white folded clothes. And they said, why are you weeping? And do you know what Mary does? Mary looks in and says to them, they have taken away my Lord and I do not know where they have laid them. Angels folded clothes. She's like, y'all seen Jesus? And I want, I, I want, I want to point out that they, you like, they're like, why are you, like, they don't get it either. They're like, what's up? You don't see? Like, we're angels. Hello, this is white. But there is something about grief that debilitates hope. I just want to remind you, a woman had angels in front of him and still didn't think God was moving. So I just don't, don't dish yourself the next time you miss it. Because a woman who knew the physical body of Jesus had been tortured couldn't reimagine Jesus. Let me just say a side note. A lot of the times you are struggling is because you can't, you can't imagine what God could do with this situation. You're like, how could he turn this around? Your, your imagination has not caught up with the miraculous work of God. So you, your, your brain is trying to catch up, and yet that's what's happening here. She's, there, there's two angels, folded clothes. Disciples run out. They're like, yo, and they run out, and she's just like, where have you taken him? Listen, don't be so mean to her. Don't be so mean to yourself. Sometimes grief just it blinds you to see what is in front of you, what, what happens next. She leaves out, and it says, having said this, she turns around and saw Jesus, but she didn't know it was Jesus. Jesus said to her, woman, why are you weeping? Whom are you seeking? So angels and Jesus are like, do you not, what, what, I mean, literally like, what, what, are you looking for Jesus? Because these, these angels, okay. Supposing him to be a gardener. You see how her mind worked. Supposing him to be a gardener, she said to him, Sir, if you've carried him away, tell him where you have laid him. Tell me where you have laid him, and I'll take him away. And Jesus, I can only imagine Jesus is staring her right in the eye. And she's just, she's frantic. She's like, do you know where he is? And remember, she's been weeping. She's been crying. And I can only imagine she pauses and he pauses and he just stops. And he says, Mary. And her breath is taken away. And she says, Rabbi. And y'all, two angels folded clothes, even the voice of Jesus didn't do it. But there's something about when he calls your name. There was a young lady who grew up in a Buddhist household, but she, the Buddhism never took root in her heart. She came to know Christ, but one day, she was serving in college ministry, and she saw how other people were serving. 
And one day it dawned on her that her relationship with God, even though she was a Christian, her relationship with God had not become personal. And so while in college, somehow Jesus reached out to a girl named Judy. And Judy, that, that name Judy struck out to her. And what she was learning is God didn't just want a college student. He didn't say college student. He said Judy. God is not just calling you to an occupation or a, a degree. He's calling you by name. One day a young man was in music school wanting to be a great musician, but he had walked away from the Lord and he wasn't giving God the attention that God was due. And he had opened up his Bible in the dorm room and he said that the words just began to pop out on the page and just speak to him. What he realized was God was not calling him musician. God was saying, Mark, he was calling him by name. One day, a, a young lady was on a mission trip in Palestine, so she, she knew the Lord, but, but something about being in that Palestine space and seeing all the oppression isolated her. And all the doubts that she had with Jesus, even while on mission with Jesus, she was dealing with doubts. And then one day in Palestine, while on mission, she wrestled with her doubts with God. And God cut through those doubts, not by saying missionary, but by saying Wendy. One day, a, a nine-year-old boy who was, had a lot of people in his family didn't feel he was getting the kind of attention. He didn't feel he was seen. He didn't feel he was cared for. and He, he wasn't doing well in school. And so through his challenges in school and through not really feeling connected in his family, he didn't feel like he was measuring up. He didn't feel like he was performing. But out of nowhere, this young man felt like the Holy Ghost touched his life out of nowhere, just sitting in his room. And he says that, I don't know what was said to me, but I knew immediately I was loved. So I went into my dad's room and said, I want to know Jesus personally. And he came to find out he wasn't calling him to be a good little boy. He was calling him Tim by name. And I want you to know tonight, some of you are thinking you've got to measure up and be something for God. He wants you by name, by name. He wants you. He'll deal with your occupation. He'll deal with your vocation. He'll deal with your future, but your name he wants. And tonight, we look at what Mary did. And for those of you that are on a point where you're figuring things out with God, look at what Mary did. After Mary says, Oh, Rabbi, it's you. Look what she does in verse 17 of chapter 20. Jesus said to her, don't cling to me, for I am not yet ascended to the Father, but go to the brothers and say to them, I am ascending to my Father and your Father, to my God and your God. Literally, in the Greek, because this sounds like Jesus is bougie, right? It's just like, hey, come on. Come on, I got people to see, right? It seems like he's saying, don't touch me. But that's not what he's saying. In the Greek, do you know what this is literally saying? Don't hug me so hard. <laughs> and you know what she did? 
when she figured out, oh, you are the man that I thought you were. You are the miracle worker I thought you were. You are the person that can fix my life. She said, Jesus is mine. I'm going to hold on to him. I'm going to make sure he's everything in my life. And so that's what she does. She says, you are my greatest possession. You change everything within me. And that's what I encourage you to do tonight, to know that Jesus is yours. She clings to him, to know him. And lastly, I will say this. Look what Jesus says. He says, don't cling to me. Go to my brothers. They had been walking with the disciples for like three years. The disciples weren't just disciples. These were my boys. That's why I didn't rise from the dead for you. Because if that was me, I'd be like, go tell those jokers, meet me at five o'clock at the lake. Straight up. You weren't there for me. You said you were going to be there for me. You weren't. Those people deserted me. Look at this. He says, go to my brothers. Tell them I'm going to the Father. Jesus, after the resurrection, is still pursuing them, still wanting them. And some of you tonight, you made great claims of how you'd be faithful. You made great promises to God, how you'd read, you'd study, you'd be faithful, and you failed. And he's saying, you're still part of the family. Go, go tell them I want to see them tonight. And so I pray that tonight your story isn't filled with losses, but like Franny Crosby, no loss, no shame, no failure defines your story. Jesus defines your story. In the name of Jesus tonight, Lord, we love you. We ask that you would, in your own way, that you would remind us of our name, that you would say our name, that you would call us out by our name and remind us of our love for you. God, if there's someone here tonight that is not sure, they're not sure of, have they heard that voice? I pray that they would press in tonight. I pray that they would reach out to one of the leaders and just acknowledge that they want to know Jesus more. Lord, we love you. We lift our hearts, our hands, our lives to you. We acknowledge you're the leader of our life and you can change us however you want. In Jesus' name, amen. We hope today's message was encouraging for you. We'd also love to hear how God used this message to speak to you. We hear from people all across the country about what God is doing through our podcast, and we'd love to hear from you. You can email us at info at bridgechurchnyc.com. You can also find us on Facebook and Instagram. Our handle for both of those social media outlets is at BridgeChurchNYC. Our website is BridgeChurchNYC.com. If you're in the New York City area, we have services at 4 p.m. and 6 p.m. on Sundays at 98 Fifth Avenue in Brooklyn, New York, right next to the Barclay Center. We are praying for you and we hope to see you soon.